several years ago, Sherry and I were at a Christmas party for our ministry staff in the inner city of San Diego. Each member of the team was to present something meaningful about Christmas. It could be a song, it could be a poem, a story, some way to focus our thoughts on the reason for the season. As best as I still remember, one of those skits acted out by a couple of the staff members and their families went like this. The scene was a festive birthday party celebrated in one of their homes. Guests were starting to arrive. Bright streamers and balloons hung from the ceiling. Festive music was playing in the background. Soon everyone had arrived except for the esteemed guest of honor, the birthday fellow. The crowd gathered around the door excitedly waiting for his entrance. But several minutes passed and some folks began to gravitate over to the snacks and the punch. Others started in on a beautiful snowy landscape jigsaw puzzle in the far corner of the room. A few more gathered around an old upright piano along the wall and began to sing out some favorite familiar old tunes. Some of these songs even featured the birthday man's name. After a while, the gathered crowd all agreed that it would be a shame to waste the hard work and the expense that went into making this bash happen. So they decided to go ahead and start the party without the birthday guy. The party commenced and the decor, the delicious food, the music and festive spirit provided everyone with a grand celebration. In time, the evening grew late. Little children became worn out as did their parents. And everyone agreed that in spite of the missing guest of honor, a good time had been had by all. In fact, his name was scarcely mentioned as guests began to trickle on home. Something was missing. Last week, a prominent conservative media site repeatedly sent emails asking me to take their pop quiz on the history of Christmas. I finally gave in out of curiosity and I took the, kid, the quiz. There were only seven questions. Questions about the first Christmas tree, about the most popular Christmas song ever, even one about George Washington leading his troops across the Delaware River on a cold Christmas Eve night in 1776. Only the very first question even mentioned the birth of Jesus, but that actual question was, how many Christians do you estimate there to be on the face of the planet? Something seemed to be missing. Two Sundays ago, we were blessed with a sermon from Peter that featured Jesus presenting this parable of the sower and the seed and the soil from Matthew 13. There Jesus gave a word picture about dirt, is what it was. And as farmers and gardeners in here know, the growth of a seed depends a great deal on the dirt that it is planted in. Jesus explained to the crowd gathered around him that a farmer went out to his field to plant seed. As he went, some of that seed fell along the roadside where there was literally no soil. Birds came and ate it up because it didn't have a chance to even take root. It laid there on the surface. Some of the seed, though, fell by the roadside 
And it was upon rocky soil where soil existed, but it was very, very shallow, barely covering the stone that was beneath the soil. That seed sprang up quickly. But as soon as the sun rose and began to radiate heat down upon those plants, they all began to shrivel up. They died, producing no food, fruit. Now it says that some seed actually fell among thorns. And as it grew, those thorn plants also grew and crowded in all around it. And these thorns choked the plant so that it could not produce any fruit. None at all. What was Jesus talking about when he said thorns choked the plant? We don't have to guess, do we? Jesus actually laid it out very clearly to his disciples. He said, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. Then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. From Matthew chapter 13 verse 22. Could that verse, could that explanation possibly be called the seedbed of an American Christmas. There is a seed about Jesus that has been planted. It has to a certain extent grown. It has taken a place in Christmas celebrations in many venues around this country. Some with prominence and some very obscure mention of that man. But whatever plant has managed to struggle up through the soil has most often been surrounded by thorns. Surrounded by thorns, meaningless songs, strange sweaters, numerous parties, sports tournaments, constant advertising on radio, social media, and television, mounting credit card debt, odd competitions, family spats, gift disappointment, advanced computerized lighting technologies, None of which perhaps are evil or wicked in their own right. But they have surrounded that plant. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches effectively choke. That means to stifle by drowning or overgrowth. They have choked it out so that there's not any growth that would bear fruit to magnify the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The Christmas party skit I mentioned earlier, it was simple. The message was easy to understand. And it raises this question. Why is Jesus Christ so easily ignored and misrepresented in a season that is called Christmas, Christmas? Do we agree that is true? Is Christ ignored, misrepresented at this time of year that bears his name? See, that is not simply disappointing or frustrating. It's actually tragic. I believe it even qualifies in some cases as the biblical term blasphemy, which is defined as a disrespecting rejection and harmful attack by words and deeds against someone, especially against God. There are at least two reasons for this ignoring, misrepresentation, and blasphemy 
that takes place. And one of them is we do not know who this person that was born really is. We do not begin to grasp who he really is. And the second is we do not know who we really are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us. Lord, I pray that you would overcome my weaknesses and inabilities and that you would speak with your spirit to each of our hearts and minds, including mine, that we would know you, that we would honor and glorify you, that this, that this word would speak to us, that we would praise you and worship you and live for you. Whether it's Christmas tomorrow, uh, Thanksgiving a month ago, whatever it is, or that every day we would see the glories of who you are. So please lead us, Father, this morning. In your name we pray, amen. If we look at the book of Matthew, chapter 1, and we look at verse 18, it begins with, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. The word birth there is a Greek word, genesis, or, and what does that sound like? It's Genesis. It's the origin, the ancestry. It begins to tell us where did this Jesus come from? What led up to him? If we go even further back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read the book of the genealogy, the generation. It's the same Greek word there. The generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Where did he come from? Matthew crafts the first 17 verses of his gospel into this detailed and strategic genealogical map of Jesus. He begins with Abraham and works his way to David and then he goes on to Joseph. But why does that matter? That's a lot of ink to spill just to talk about a bunch of famous dead relatives. Why does that matter? <clears throat> In fact, most of the time we'd like to say, well, let's get to the exciting stuff. The angels, the shepherds, the wise men, the murderous madman king. Matthew begins with this report of the birth of Jesus in this manner because he chooses to establish two mountainous truths. These are two foundational truths that the entire birth and life and death of Jesus Christ stand upon. What do we see first? We see first that Jesus has been born in fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham that was spoken thousands of years earlier back in Genesis chapter 12. This is not an isolated event that pops up that we throw our hands up in glory and praise. How did this ever happen? No, this begins way back in Genesis. It actually begins at the fall in the promises of God. But we find the covenant that God made with Abraham about this. And he says in Genesis chapter 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Then you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if we remember what Abraham looked like at that point of Genesis, how many kids did he have when he heard this? None. 
And God makes these outlandish promises, outlandish for anyone but God. The birth of this covenant-fulfilling God-child, Jesus Christ, would fulfill the final part of that Abrahamic covenant. Through the coming of this newborn baby, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, the gospel of Christ would fulfill this promise to Abraham that men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would receive an eternal blessing through Jesus Christ. Secondly, we read that the child was born in fulfillment of God's covenant made with King David. Nathan, a prophet of God, promised to King David a thousand years before Jesus was born. And he said this in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house, then your kingdom, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now some of that was fulfilled with Solomon. But the vast majority and the essence of what God promised him would not be fulfilled until this baby was born a thousand years later. That the Messiah must come from the lineage of David was an immutable requirement in the Jewish mind. While Jewish theologians, Pharisees, differed on, on many theological topics. In this, they had a point of unanimous consensus. The Messiah must come from David. Jesus indisputably came from the line of David. And for Jews who have rejected Jesus' claim as Messiah, and they still await another, that other will never come. How can I be so certain? For one thing, as a result of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the temple along with all Jewish genealogical records and archives were completely destroyed. There no longer exists a valid means by which another man could ever prove to be of the required lineage of David. That opportunity is gone. Seventeen verses so far have been used by Matthew to establish Jesus' kingly Davidic line. But in one verse, in one verse, Matthew establishes something far more critical. Matthew 1.18, and zero with me in on 1.18, and we're going to look at that verse very carefully. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now let's examine each facet of that as if it were a diamond. And you have these facets of beauty and power that shine forth on this diamond. Mary and Joseph were espoused in betrothal. It's the first of a two-step system in Jewish marriage. The second step of which would come would be the actual marriage ceremony or the hoopah. In the betrothal stage, a contract has been written. And a mohar or bride price has already been paid to the bride's father. In other words, Joseph has already paid Mary's price to her father. The betrothal time served as a period of probation and testing of fidelity. 
Betrothal could sometimes last as long as a year. And during this period, the couple had very little social contact with each other. In order to dissolve a betrothal, it would require a letter of divorce. That's how serious the relationship already was. It says they were betrothed. And before they came together, let's look at that for a moment. Joseph and Mary had not had any sexual contact with each other. In other, in other excuse me, in our contemporary culture, where the precious gift of marital union and sexual intimacy has been erased, this sounds bizarre. It almost sounds prudish. But it was indispensable in God's strategy for His Son. Throughout Scripture, Joseph is never called the father of Jesus. And Jesus is never called the son of Joseph, except in John 6.42 where the Pharisees and Jews are trying to argue and invalidate who Jesus is. Joseph is never mentioned even in Mary's glorious song of praise for the baby God has placed in her womb in Luke chapter 1. There is no question that Jesus was born of Mary but was not born of Joseph. And then it says, before they came together, she was found with child. Mary's outward appearance became obvious. I thought of that this morning. Joseph didn't stand up in the synagogue before the people one uh, Saturday morning and say, praise God, Mary's pregnant. And everybody clap. Not at all. This was a very, very difficult time. The family as well as the community could tell she was pregnant. These two phrases capture the impossibility and the glory of the entire situation. There had been no sexual relationship between Mary and Joseph or any other man. Yet Mary was obviously pregnant. Such a thing is literally impossible. And Mary was very likely the only soul on earth for that period of time that grasped, at least to some degree, the miraculous nature of what had happened to her. Seriously. If you were in the marketplace and you saw Mary in her state of pregnancy buying some bread or you passed by their home and you noticed her working in the garden, would any of us thought, I think this lady must have miraculously conceived a baby from the creator of the universe. You know what we would have thought. And probably the main question would have been, who is the father? And we would never have believed the answer to that question regardless of what she said. She's found with child of the Holy Spirit. This child that Mary carries in her womb, and keep this in mind, that little child is being nourished and sustained in her womb by her own physical body. This God child was literally God in a mortal body. One that has the capacity to die. Again, another impossibility. That God would conceive himself as a mortal child in a human woman's womb is crazy talk. I'm not even sure how to even speak of it sometimes. 
But while it may have seemed crazy, such an incarnated God in human flesh was absolutely necessary to accomplish what God intended to do through Jesus Christ. The Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. In verses 1 through 17, Jesus' earthly right to kingship is established by several generations of forefathers like Joseph and Jacob and Matthan and Eleazar and Eliud all the way back to David. But to establish the fact of his deity, his godness, there must be only one step. The Holy Spirit. Mary was with child of the Holy Spirit. It comes as no surprise then that Joseph Mary's fiance was devastated. At the moment he saw his obviously pregnant future bride, remember at that moment there existed no gospel of Matthew and no gospel of Luke, no New Testament books to explain what this child would be, nothing that would help him somehow make sense of what he is looking at right before him. How could this happen? Not Mary. Never, my dear Mary. Verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he was a man who had a deep love for God. It translates as being holy and righteous. He was a man who believed in God. And he did not want to make her, Mary, a public example, which would have undoubtedly led to public disgrace for the rest of her life, even possibly to execution by stoning. Out of love for Mary, Joseph planned to send her away secretly. It's another way of saying he was going to quietly divorce her. He returned evil with good. Why do I say that? Well, we know the end of the story, but, G but Joseph didn't. What he saw with Mary in his mind could be be assumed to be nothing but some sort of wicked, evil transgression. Something morally wrong. And he returned evil with good as far as he could understand it. He, in many ways, laid down his life. He trusted God with the results. His reputation, his career, his family. You see, in the same way that Mary's son Jesus would someday, as the scripture says in 1 Peter, commit himself to him who judges righteously. Joseph did the same. I must trust God. Verse 20, and when he had considered this, you see, Joseph then tries to sort out the indisputable evidence that is torturing his mind. What is the right thing to do? How, how am I going to do this? Although the Apostle Paul was not yet even a believer and certainly not an apostle, Joseph seems to have wrestled hard with the spirit of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation would provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. What could be Joseph's way of escape in this? As Joseph wrestles with this impossible situation, the Lord sends an angel to speak to him in a dream. 
Verse 20, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. As Joseph wrestles with this impossible situation, the angel cries out, Joseph. The personal touch of God, Joseph. Thou son of David, the very identity that has placed Joseph in this critical role. Fear not. Replace fear with faith. Mary, Mary. Complete the marriage arrangement. The child she carries is God's own son. Verse 21, he will be a son. You, Joseph, call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. How can that be? This baby that is to be born soon, that will save his people from their sins. Look at verse 22, Matthew 8, excuse me, Matthew 1. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord to the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The great emphasis of the angel's declaration is really upon the purpose of God, not the events that are prophesied. Let me say that again. The angel's declaration is upon the purpose of God and not simply the events prophesied. The sovereignty of the Almighty Lord God who holds all times and events and the lives of every man and woman who has ever been born on this planet or will be in his hand. This God spoke his will through the prophet Isaiah. He declared what he would do in the future. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The timing, the context of that is when Isaiah declares this prophecy, it's in the days of a very wicked king, King Ahaz. He was a son of the great king Uzziah. Ahaz has gone so far as to reinstate Molech worship. And far from being a casual observer, that wicked man burned his own son in fire sacrifice to Molech. In the midst of Ahaz's wickedness, there are two kings. King Retzin of Syria and King Pekah of Israel. These two are conspiring to eliminate Ahaz. Rather than seeking Yahweh, the God of Judah, the godless king Ahaz pleads for assistance from Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. Help from other kings does not come cheap. Ahaz plundered the gold and silver out of the Jerusalem temple of God to pay off Tiglath-Pileser. And in the midst of all this drama, Isaiah arrives on the scene and tells Ahaz, God will deliver the people. He will deliver them from Ratzin and Pekah. Think of prophecy. That's so much around of what we're seeing at this time, this, this 
special time of the year with Christ being born. The prophecies of God are not subject to the events that will someday take place. Sometimes we get that turned around. You see, these prophecies, these events are subject rather to the prophecy. The prophecies of God are not subject to the events that will someday take place. The events that will someday take place are completely subservient to the prophecies that God has spoken. God does not issue prophecy to cover some future event that is going to occur. No, those events must occur because God has declared them. The Word of God controls. Those events must occur. Yahweh of hosts has sworn, says Isaiah. Surely, just as I have attended, intended, so it has happened. And just as I have counseled, so it will stand. Chapter 14, 27 of Isaiah. For Yahweh of hosts has counseled, and who can thwart it? As for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Joshua chapter 23. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. 1 Kings 8, verse 56 from Solomon. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. Now let's fast forward back up several centuries from these ancient prophets to the village of Nazareth. Matthew chapter 1 verses 20 through 22. Here the angel is proclaiming to Joseph another ancient prophecy. Another one spoken through Isaiah. He says, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And now is the time for its fulfillment. Paul said that in Galatians 4. He said, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son right on time. Just as he had planned from the foundation of the world. You see, the highest significance in the angel's message to Joseph is the purpose and identity of this miraculously born child. His purpose, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. His identity, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this very event of the arrival of the God child through the Virgin Mary is described in this name, Emmanuel. God is with us. You see, that very phrase is the deep core of the Christmas message. Not only that, it's the heart and soul of the whole gospel message. It is the most essential element in the coming of the Son of God. Jesus was God and is God even as a baby when he first arrived. He is God as the rabbi teacher in the temple or on the street or on the hillside. He was God as he was arrested, beaten furiously, spit upon, stripped and mocked. When he was nailed to the cross and hung bleeding and dying, he was God. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was still God. He was the victorious God as he declared on that cross. It is finished. He was God and is God in his mighty self-resurrection from the dead. He confirmed himself to be God. That phrase in that 
Christmas carol, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. He was Jesus, Lord, eternally before birth and eternally afterward. He has never not been Lord. Let's look at verse 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Joseph gets it. Somehow God gave him the grace to understand where this is going. He understood 30 years later that baby would grow up and say, whoever has my commands and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and show myself to him. Joseph obeyed. He was obedient to the commands of God. Joseph married Mary and he knew her not. As one verse says, he took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Full obedience in a very, very difficult situation. Joseph was no great king. He was no well-known Pharisee. He was not a popular teacher of the day. He was far more. He was a righteous man who would obey the word of the Lord God. Brothers and sisters, could that be us? Will we walk in obedience to the word of the Lord God? In closing, in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus was surrounded by a group of Pharisees. They were trying to verbally trap him. And then he asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That question must be answered. We asked that question a couple of times last night in Old Town. We've asked it on the campus. I've asked it hundreds of times, if not more. Who is this Jesus? It's a question that not only Pharisees must answer, but every man and woman who will ever live. Someday, you will be faced with who is Jesus. There is no greater question. Your eternity hangs upon it. Once that question is answered, you will either respond like the Pharisees did in self-love, in blindness and rebellion, or you will respond as Joseph in obedience to the will of God. A skeptic once asked a believer, if I told you that man over there was born without a human father, would you believe me? The believer replied, yes, if he lived like Jesus. The unassailable confirmations of the deity of Christ, the godness of Christ are his birth, his sinless life, his obedience and oneness with the Father, his miraculous power, and his mighty resurrection from the dead. Who is Jesus? If you know, will it change your life? Will it change tomorrow? If you know. I want to just close with what the scriptures clearly tell us. Who is Jesus? Colossians 1. Beginning with verse 15. He, 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Remember that description. That is the child that is in the womb of Mary that was born to save us. Philippians chapter 2. Who, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When we celebrate tomorrow, when we read Luke 2, remember that is just out of the starting blocks of this one that would save us from our sin, who would rule the earth, who at one time created the earth and everything in it. And yet God has brought him in the most miraculous fashion one could imagine. Then one more biblical description. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained or more excellent name than they. That is who Jesus is. The Maybe it's like a fire hydrant with all these scriptures and stuff that we're telling you. But no, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. The second question, who are you? How will you respond? If, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a walking dead man. You are condemned already, Scripture tells us. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, now and forever. Why? Because the wages of your sin and my sin is death. That's what our lives earn in our rebellion towards our Creator. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you have placed your trust in Jesus as the Son of God, if His death on the cross paid your sin penalty of death and He conquered death for His followers through His resurrection from the grave, 
Here is the most wonderful gift you could ever know. Again, back to Galatians 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir of God through Christ. Rejoice. Have a wonderful celebration. We are the most blessed people in the world if we've known Christ. It's, it's a gift that we can, can even begin to hardly grasp. But let's keep trying. There's a song that, that uh, I really like at this time of year. It's a little bit unconventional. Uh, I'll just read the lyrics to you. I think it's by Sovereign Grace. Oh come, all you unfaithful, come weak and unstable. Come, no, you are not alone. Oh come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. Oh, come, bitter and broken. Come with fears unspoken. Come, taste of his perfect love. Oh, come, guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. He is the lamb who was given. Slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. He's the lamb who was given. Slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come. Though you have nothing. Come. He is the offering. Come see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. I am such a babe at beginning to understand the depths and magnitude of what a God you are, of what grace you shower out upon us, of how undeserving we are, that you would give your Son to save us and to bring us into sonship and daughtership with you. Oh, mighty God, thank you. I pray for each one of us. We will enjoy much time with uh, some things that are very uh, surfacey, Father. I know that. But deep in our hearts and our thoughts that we will be gripped and grasped by your Holy Spirit. That we will be like those shepherds who went away praising and glorifying God. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Lord, it's such a joy, precious privilege to be brothers and sisters with them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.